0: Blessed are the peacemakers, so, so bright, who spread the wings of love like doves in flight. With hearts attuned to harmony's sweet song, they mend the fractures, heal the world's long wrong. In every conflict's fire, they stand tall. With gentle words, they quench the flames that sprawl. Their voices bridge the gaps of hate and fear and bring the promise of a future clear. Amidst the storms, they anchor souls in calm, With open arms, they offer peace as balm, their empathy a beacon in the night, guiding lost hearts towards hope's guiding light. They bind the wounds of animosity and sow the seeds of unity's decree. With hands that work for justice's embrace, they build a world where all can find a place. Blessed are they who choose to understand, to reach across the lines that often stand in unity, their strength is amplified. A force that's sent to change the world, defy. They seek not vengeance, nor defend the flame, but strive to break the cycle of the blame. With eyes that see the spark of good in all, they lift the fallen, hear the wounded call. Their presence filled the air with pieces sent. As diplomats of love, they are content to weave connections, threads of common ground, a tapestry of oneness they have found. So let us learn from those who paved the way, the peacemakers, whose hearts won't lead astray. In uplifting tones, their spirits soar, for in their peace, the world finds hope galore.
1: Good morning. I am Pastor Mike. And today we're going to kick or continue through our series on the Beatitudes, Jesus' upside-down blessings from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And today we're just going to dive right in to Beatitude number seven, which is blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I, I love this Beatitude because personally, I actually find the word peace to be an oddly complicated term. It's something that we would all probably say we desire, but when pressed, would really struggle to actually define what peace even really is. Are you all track with me on that? Which is interesting, because Jesus, it wasn't complicated to him, at least the defining part of it. And that's because for Jesus, peace was defined by one central Hebrew word, which is shalom. We talked about this a lot in the Ephesian series over the summer. Shalom, it describes the perfect state of completeness and wholeness that God intended for all relationships, for all things at the beginning. Shalom, peace, what creation lived within until, you know, humanity broke it. And thus, in many ways, this term is is just kind of fundamental to who Jesus is. It kind of defines his story when you think about it. Jesus, the Messiah, the King of peace, come to reestablish God's shalom between humanity, God, and creation once more. Through his life, his death, his resurrection. Love it. Love it, love it. I've always loved this term shalom. I think it's a stunning, beautiful definition of peace. And no wonder Jesus blesses the shalom makers, right? Does anyone else like this definition? Anyone else moved by that? But it's interesting, because shalom also creates a unique challenge. Because frankly, if we're honest, most of us hold visions and definitions of peace that actually have very little to do with shalom at all. What I have come to understand as false definitions of peace. For example, and raise your hand if this is true for you, some of us falsely define peace as the absence of conflict. And thus peacemaking is avoiding conflict. Anybody? Not rocking the boat, right? Right? Which sounds nice in theory, but y'all, in practice, that creates anything but peace. All it creates in practice is this constant, anxious, internal tape about how we have to make people happy at all times, or we are no longer in a state of peace. It's mind-boggling, because that's impossible, right? So if peace is making everyone happy always, then I guess peace is impossible. Or how about this one? There's the opposite. A false peace defined by control or imposing one's will. I found that this is more common in us men. Ah! It's a vision of peace found in popular stories about superheroes, cowboys, wars, revenge, that upholds that peacemaking is the good guys just punching the bad guys, Right? retaliation, escalation, devastation, the old, they may have hit me first, they may have started it, but I finished it. Anyone taught that by their dad growing up? Am I the only one? That's right. <laughs> Which is an enticing, simplistic worldview. It works great in the movies, I get why it's appealing, but y'all, in reality, it's proved ill-equipped every single time at producing actual peace when it comes to real complex world conflicts and relationships. In fact, what I have found is that this vision of peace ends up just producing more of the very harms that it claims to be ending. If you don't believe me, let me give you the most classic example of false peace from almost all of human history, and that's the Treaty of Versailles, which I think captures this perfectly. The disastrous peace agreement that ended World War I by incorrectly blaming Germany alone for the war, punishing them unilaterally with these huge sanctions and reparations that all but guaranteed the collapse of their economy after the war, which, by the way, resolved zero of the war's actual causes and effectively guaranteed that there'd just be another one 20 years later, where this little fascist guy named Hitler came along, wielded the fears and resentments created by Versailles to mobilize the German people into World War II. Did that create peace? No. And that's ultimately the danger of false peace, of embracing false peace. With it guiding us, we inevitably end up acting in ways that break peace, all while thinking that we are playing peacemaker. It's a state of delusion that has crippled humanity for almost our entire existence. And it's a big problem if we are to call ourselves disciples of Jesus, because apparently Jesus believes that this peacemaking task is so central, so fundamental to who he is, to why he came, to his kingdom agenda, that it's what reveals us as children of God when we do it as true, accurate reflections of God's character, ways, and purposes in the world. Jesus says that it's that fundamental to who he is, that this is what we must be known by if we are to be children of our heavenly parent, which means that we have to get this peacemaking thing right, which is why I want to explore it today. And I want to do so through two texts from the Gospel of Matthew that I think are absolutely fascinating. And we're just going to dive in. The first of which appears soon after these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus teaches this. Check this out. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, is in danger of the fire of hell. Ooh. Now, first, understand that what we find here is Jesus deploying a formula that appears throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Where, in effect, he begins, you have heard that it was said before quoting some faulty interpretation of an Old Testament command, then continuing with, but I tell you, after which he provides his correct interpretation, how we should understand this command, usually reorienting our understanding of it back to what its intended purpose was supposed to be which is almost always about the transformation of our hearts. Because, as Dan explored last Sunday in his message, for Jesus, religion and spirituality were never intended by God to be about just following these external checklists of rules, right? No, God intended religion and spirituality to be these vehicles with a purpose these vehicles for transforming our hearts, our internal worlds, our deepest attitudes and postures that we hold concerning ourselves, others, and God, from which internal, external behaviors actually flow. That was the point of this whole religion thing. We get transformed in here so that we change out there, right? Thus, here, we see Jesus deploying this formula for that exact purpose, Here, Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments, thou shall not murder, before offering his reinterpretation on this prohibition and its intended purpose, expanding it to include three internal realities that he invests with equal weight to murder. So let's unpack this. First, there's anger. Now, does Jesus believe that all anger is sinful? No. No. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, right? Where we saw Jesus actually modeling for us what righteous anger towards injustice is meant to look like. Clearly, this is not an overall prohibition against anger. This is about a specific form of anger that Jesus believes we must root out of ourselves. Not fight or flight, not righteous indignation, but wrath. And we all know what this is it's that rage that we feel when we get so mad at someone else that we just start seeing red. Anyone ever been there before? We stop seeing the situation as complex. We start seeing the other person as complex and it is just kill, kill, kill. Am I right? Anyone ever felt that towards their spouse, for example? Much as a parent or a child, we know what this is about, right? So we get so angry in a situation that we just stop seeing the complex, dignified image bearer of God standing in front of us. And for Jesus, apparently, this is the first internal domino that must fall for murder to even be possible. But it's not the last one because wrath is just step one. Because what happens when wrath is unresolved? Well, it escalates, according to Jesus, to example tool, calling someone raka or empty-headed. And we're like, so what? I call my kid empty-headed all the time, right? But this is important. You you have to understand, in Jesus' culture, one's name was very important. Because in Jesus' first century Israelite culture, one's name symbolized their identity, their destiny. Thus, name-calling was not something they did just for fun. Name-calling was serious. Name-calling, if you think about it, when you get down to it, was about doing one thing, which was stripping away and simplifying another person's identity and all, down to one negative quality. To remove that God-given identity and replace it with something vulgar, cruel, demeaning. Thus for Jesus, I think what he's trying to get at is this exemplifies domino number two on our path towards murder, where when fed, wrath festers into hate. That internal shift, which again, we've all felt, where anger becomes disconnected from any specific stimuli. And instead we just start hating the very thought of that person that person, right? Our blood just begins to boil at the mention of their name, at which point Jesus believes we are one step away from what is the worst and final of these internal dominoes, which he encapsulates in calling someone else a fool, which again, in our culture, no big deal. But y'all, in scripture, you have to understand a fool is someone who actively rejects god's wisdom someone who chooses to oppose what is good right and just in this world a fool is perhaps the most morally repugnant thing that one could be in the hebrew scriptures in other words what i think jesus is getting at is that right here hate becomes this thing called contempt where internally we've stripped away the other person's humanity so thoroughly that we view them not just as flawed, y'all, but as enemies of God, as some object undeserving of respect. Contempt is where our anger stops even being a hot emotion anymore. Our hearts grow cold and we just become uncaring about what happens to the other person at all because they're not even human in our eyes anymore. And y'all, for Jesus, this is the most dangerous form of anger. And it makes sense, right? This is what lets someone kill without remorse. This is what produces things like genocide. This is one of the most broken things that can happen inside of us as it comes to another human being. Wrath, hate, contempt, internal postures that are so broken That Jesus calls them the same as murder before connecting them to hell. This is a complicated topic. I always feel like I have to do a little bit of a tangent to talk about this word hell whenever it comes up in one of our texts and teachings, And I want to do that today because this is a very complicated term. But I also want to highlight that we explored this term very deeply in the Y series a year ago. So if you are interested in like a really in-depth exploration of what this word means in your Bible, I recommend you go on Vimeo or our podcast, and check it out over there. But briefly, what I need you to understand today is that what's often translated as hell is actually three different Greek words meaning different things in your Bible. Here, for example, it's this word Gehenna, which in Greek just means the Valley of Hanum, which is actually a real notorious place outside of Jerusalem. Look at this picture. You guys are staring into hell. How fascinating is that? You never knew that Pastor Mike was going to show you that today, right? It's interesting. (laughs) It was a real concrete place, this valley of Hinnom. And you see in the Hebrew scriptures, Gehenna was where Israelites sacrificed children to the pagan god Molech, which led it to become this symbol of essentially everything wrong in our world. It's a symbol in the Hebrew scriptures of what happens when humans embrace evil and just utterly reject God's wisdom and God's ways, which is a history for this place that actually in Jesus's day led it to become a dump full of animals that gnashed their teeth over scraps of food and a place that was full of fires that constantly burned because that's how you removed trash back in that day. Gehenna, the place of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? All to say what I want you to get is that for Jesus's first century Jewish audience, Gehenna symbolized absolute death, despair, decay, destruction. It was the valley of everything gone wrong in God's good world, the town dumpster fire. Powerful reference, right? A charged reference. And one that what we find if we read our gospels is that Jesus actually deploys it in various ways ways, different ways for different purposes. Particularly for today, at times, one of the many ways that he uses it is he uses Gehenna metaphorically to describe what's most antithesis to God in our world. What in our world absolutely must be removed for shalom to be reestablished one day? Things like war, violence, genocide, injustice. A loaded metaphor that Jesus then uses rhetorically Not to talk about the afterlife, but talk about who we are right now, how we live right now. To in effect, ask with the most dramatic imagery possible for his audience, when you weigh your life and your relationships, the external fruit of your internal world, do you see yourself building heaven or hell on earth? That's how Jesus uses it here. And connecting wrath, hate, contempt to Gehenna, he highlights what these postures have always produced in our world. Not shalom, not once, but rather it's opposite. Just more of what's gone wrong, indifference, destruction, murder. Also he can with the strongest imaginal language implore us to see these things for what they are and then let him get the hells out of us. Are y'all tracking with me on that? Yes? Wake up. (laughs) Good, because Jesus is gonna continue. He wants to explore what the antidote to these internal hells might be. We continue in verse 23. Therefore, if you're altering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gifts. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So what is Jesus' antidote to these internal hells? Well, Jesus tells two hyperbolic stories rather than provide any sort of clear answer. Classic Jesus, right? But together, they do reveal, I think, the transformed peacemaker heart that Jesus envisions so first, we have this story uh, and we have this idea that we're supposed to have these hearts that are epitomized by this poor Israelite man who is walking to the temple to offer a sacrifice, which, in where Jesus was standing, was 90 miles away. So get that idea in your head. He's talking about walking 90 miles to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice to God. And so they walk 90 miles, they get to the altar where it's time to make the sacrifice, and then they realize all of a sudden, wait a minute, I wronged It. haven't apologized to my neighbor, Bob, yet. At which point, what is this poor Israelite person supposed to do in Jesus' mind? He puts down the sacrifice, walks 90 miles back home to first reconcile with Bob and then walk 90 miles back to the altar, pick up your sacrifice and worship God. That's funny, right? It's clearly hyperbolic. But it also highlights this key point that we're discussing that Dan did such a good job of teaching on, which is that religion means nothing if it does not produce what God intended it to. Jesus is uninterested in your sacrifices if it doesn't produce this heart that loves shalom so much that there is nothing that takes precedence over seeking to restore it once we've broken it. That's the heart that Jesus says is an antidote to wrath, hate, contempt. And then there's story number two where Jesus instructs his disciples to settle matters or more literally translated, make friends with people suing them in court. Who wants to do that? <laughs> Yo, that's the moment where you see red, right? You get that summons to court and it's, oh no, oh no, this guy. Again, it's hyperbolic, but also again, it illuminates this heart that he's talking about. It illuminates how we're called to develop these shalom hearts that let us, when we start seeing red, for whatever reason, they let us stop that spiral, take a deep breath, return to seeing that adversary as a fully-fledged human being again, and then act accordingly. To see them and to seek to engage them, not as enemies, but in ways that tries to make a friend out of those who we thought we were opposed to. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to realize. This is the heart that he thinks we should have when it comes to these things like conflict. And y'all, you know, all together, I just think this is such a wise teaching. I think that Jesus just gets that we must uproot these broken ways of seeing ourselves and others if we're going to become peacemakers like him. These internal realities where in wrath, we elevate ourselves as judges over who has wronged us, excusing our failures while exaggerating theirs in hate simplifying and dehumanizing them into just the summation of how wounded we feel, before in contempt pouring out our vengeance upon them, not as equals, not as image bearers, but as objects undeserving of compassion or grace. Seeking punitive justice, not to restore Shimon, to just hurt them worse than they hurt us. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And what we do, we just end up feeding that wrath and it becomes hatred and it becomes contempt while we walk around creating not heaven, but pockets of hell on God's good world. And y'all, you can act like you're above it. I can act like I'm above it. I wish I was, but this is so human, right? I mean, just look at our world, pain for pain, always escalating, never resolving. Heck, look at our own lives. Who here has been hurt or wounded and wanted not just an apology, no, we've wanted them to beg, to grovel, to feel pain. Am I the only one? But y'all, has that heart space ever once produced healing, wholeness, or peace in your life? Ever. Or has it not just produced this holding to of wounds? Has anger and wrath and hate and contempt fester into an all-consuming dumpster fire inside you. Again, anyone else? i preach preaching to myself this Sunday. And Jesus believes that this must change, right? And you get why this must change if we're to become citizens of his shalom-making kingdom in this world. It must change. Because to be disciples, we must find Christ's transformational peace in our hearts, first and foremost, so we can go be it in the world. Which gets to this critical next part of this message, which is that though it starts here inside of us, Jesus has no belief whatsoever that it's supposed to stay there. Which leads to the second teaching. And this one is fascinating. I actually think this is one of the most countercultural and really helpful practical teachings of the New Testament. You see, what's really interesting is that when Jesus explores internal transformation, what goes on inside of our hearts, he uses things like hyperbole and metaphor and stories. But when he turns to how we are to actually make peace in conflict, how we are supposed to become peacemakers externally in this world, Jesus gets real concrete. So so fascinating. I want you to check this out. We find this when Jesus teaches on this directly in Matthew 18, where we read, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses, If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. So question right off the bat, does Jesus use metaphor or mention anyone's heart in this passage at all? No, it's almost coldly practical, right? It's almost sterile. It's like step one, step two, step three. And I believe that's intentional. You see, I believe that in Jesus' mind, there is a difference between these internal and external expressions of peacemaking. Between forgiveness, on one hand, having a forgiving heart, and what we call reconciliation, on the other. Which is really important, because I think we often confuse these two ideas, forgiveness and reconciliation, as synonyms. And y'all, they are not. You see, internally, peacemaking is recognizing our own need for grace, for forgiveness. And then in response to that reality, becoming more forgiving people, people with these hearts that more easily release resentments that can't help but make amends when we are the ones who fractured God's shalom. People with these hearts that get that it's on us, it's our side of the street to at least try to mend broken fences when it's our fault for breaking them. That's the internal peacemaking that we are all called to as disciples. But let me ask you this. Can we make anyone else do that internal work? Can you? Can you force anyone to admit their wrong, change their hearts, and then want reconciliation? No. Thus, what I would posit for you is that clearly making peace in here, internally, is different in some way from making it externally out there. Because that's not entirely up to us, right? And y'all, this is critical to understand. Because I think the church has too often told victims of abuse that their capacity to forgive like Jesus commands them to is synonymous with reconciling with their abusers. Coming across as Jesus commanding abused people that they must forgive, forget, and stay in abusive relationships. And y'all, let me tell you, as a pastor, that is wildly destructive and irresponsible and fundamentally not what Jesus taught. Peacemaking does not mean a lack of consequence for violence, legal or otherwise. Peacemaking does not mean ignoring abuse or encouraging silence of a victim. And if you've been told that, then hear it from me. I am so sorry. Because that is not what Jesus believed. No, for Jesus, our capacity to forgive internally and reconcile externally, though linked, are fundamentally different things. So with that in mind, I want to just unpack this process of external peacemaking that Jesus calls us to practice as a church. What is the first thing we're to do when shalom's broken, when someone has wounded us? Do you ignore it? Do you stay silent? Do you cover it up? No, we confront the person who hurt us over how they've hurt us directly. We don't gossip. It's not forgive and forget let's persist. No, we address what happened directly. And ideally, the goal here is that they realize what they've done in some sort of new way. They see the impact of their choices. And as a disciple of Jesus, they go, oh my gosh, I need to repent. I need to change. I need to apologize. Stop that behavior and change. And y'all, if that happens, amen, right? That's shalom being restored. But what happens if they don't? What happens if instead they deny or they continue that harmful behavior? Well, Jesus says, then we are increasingly to bring others into that situation. First, one or two people who are relationally connected to both parties, a new trusted outside perspective on the conflict, and then more people from there. And y'all, this is so wise. I mean, we do this first and foremost because we might be wrong, right? Maybe my anger has clouded how I see things and these new people, they help me see it more clearly and I'm like, whew, I need to take a step back. But more importantly, let me ask you this question. Is the victim alone with their abuser ever again if the behavior persists? In this teaching, is the abuser alone with them? No, no, reconciliation is still sought, but it becomes the community's job, not the victim's. They're to immediately create distance, boundaries to get safe while their church community takes on the task of peacemaking that is no longer safe for them to do. And then y'all, if they still won't change, Jesus says, treat them as tax collectors or Gentiles, which doesn't mean stone them to death, right? Jesus ate with such people, right? (laughs) But it does mean shifting the conversation with that person because though Jesus ate with them, he also called them to repent, to follow him and to let him get the hells out of their hearts. All to say the conversations with this person go back to step one as if they're not even a Christian. It goes all the way back to what following Jesus even means, what it means to let Jesus heal the hells inside of us, these internal brokennesses that prevent us from being healthy in relationships, which again, church's responsibility not the victims. The church is required as a community of Christ to seek to reconcile even the most broken people in this world. But that does not mean that the abuser will ever have an individual relationship with that victim again. Because to be clear, that victim can forgive said abuser without ever establishing relationship with them in a reconciliatory way. That's critical. Do y'all see how important that is? For Jesus, that's reconciliation. This external expression of peacemaking that flows out of a transformed heart. And altogether, I saw myself reflecting this week on how different this is, this entire teaching from those false pieces we started with. You see, the peace of Christ that transforms our heart and calls us to stop dwelling on our pride and our resentment so much, that demands this deep respect for human dignity, and understands that peacemaking isn't about the absence of conflict. It's about conflict done right. It's about this inside-out movement of forgiveness and reconciliation that pushes transformed peacemakers into our world's conflicts, not with the goal of winning, not with the goal of dominating, not with the goal of letting abuse persist, but with a simple goal of just making more shalom in God's good world. That's the job. That's our calling. And y'all, it's a messy one because no one likes peacemakers like that. Not a single person. Y'all, is it ever fun getting involved in a conflict with the goal of loving everyone involved? No, everyone involved just hates you (laughs) because you're not on their side, right? That job sucks. (laughs) But y'all, it's also a job that if done right is so beautiful. Because we become these visible representations of God's eternal shalom that offer our world a different path forward from what's broken it. I mean, there's this one picture I want to show you before we close, that I think just encapsulates this perfectly. This is one of many art installations in Mozambique, Africa, a country that was destroyed by a 15-year civil war. And they began this project years ago. And what it does is it's removed thousands of weapons from circulation by exchanging them for items like bicycles, farming tools, and sewing machines before giving them to artists who then transform them into public sculptures. These symbols throughout the capital that as one of the artists who participated and who lost his father in the war said, transform instruments of death into tools of peace. Y'all, y'all. That's peacemaking. That's peacemaking. That's being a child of God. That's what it means to be blessed. Amen? So, as we head into communion, the symbol of when God made peace with us on a Roman cross so that we could come, his children, and make peace in his world, I would just challenge you to reflect. Where do you need to find and make Christ's peace? Where do you need to let Christ take your wrath, your hate, your contempt so that the Prince of Peace can nail it to that cross and from it resurrect forgiveness, reconciliation, and shalom out of all of that hell? Because that's the invitation. That's good news. And the night he gave himself up for us, He took the bread, he gave thanks to you and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he lifted the cup, the supper was over and he took it thanks to you and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you pour out your spirit upon us and that these gifts of bread and wine would become symbols of your peace, reminders of your grace, conduits of your mercy, so that through them we may be made more into a people of peace, redeemed and made whole by your love. Amen. We practice an open table. So during this song, reflect and then come take the communion elements as you see fit. The table is open.